Christian in Lent are different than some of us who are Protestant. I had friends, for instance, that I knew not a lot about what they were doing, but for instance, if you had a birthday party on a Friday and you invited any of your Catholic friends, you had to make sure you had cheese sandwiches to serve, for whatever reason that was. As a kid, I just, you can't have a hot dog? I'm really sorry about that, but here's a cheese sandwich. My mom said we should have some of these. And, you know, then I heard them talking about what they were giving up for Lent. And uh, that was something that we didn't do as Presbyterians, actually. And so they would be giving up chocolate or giving up this or the other thing. And I never fully understand that. And then I came to faith. I understood that my sins were forgiven because of the work of Christ. And I thought of some of my friends who were still giving up things for Lent. Well, that just fits in with the fact that they're always trying to work out their salvation. They're trying to earn points with God. So they give up chocolate and they give up these things. But I don't need to because I'm covered by grace. And so I didn't really grow into that deep appreciation of the usefulness and the historic meaning of Lent and giving things up for Lent that we're going to be talking about in the weeks ahead. Uh, Barry mentioned that it goes back to the 6th century, actually, in 325 A.D. at the church council at Nicaea. They actually noted what they expected to be the fasting pattern for 40 days of fasting. So this was only a few centuries after the life of Christ. They were talking about this. And where does the 40 days come from, after all? Uh, this is basically patterned after Jesus' journey out into the desert. When God led him by the Spirit out there to be tempted. And he fasted for 40 days. And so the church tried to understand, if it was good for him, is it good for me? Is there some virtue or value or something that I'm missing if I don't do that? And so the church, for all these years, has pointed people to the discipline of fasting after the model of Jesus. And we're actually going to look at that story found in Luke chapter 4 today. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. But that's where, uh, in essence, the whole season comes from. From Ash Wednesday through Monday, Thursday, leading up and preparing for the celebration of the resurrection. So almost all agree who wrestle with this Lent issue that it's to be a period of self-examination and penitence demonstrated by self-denial in preparation for Easter. And so right from the get-go, we are on a reflective journey towards the cross and the empty tomb. And that's really what we are beginning here this Ash Wednesday. So if you will look in your Bibles, Luke chapter 4. This is the story of Jesus being uh, taken out to be tempted. And just look at the first two verses to start with. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, guess what? He was hungry. 40 days. Uh, Some of you might start to get nervous about this time when we're talking about 40 days of Lent and 40 days of fasting, and you realize what Jesus did was probably an incredibly minimalist diet of just some liquids. He would have gone through really a harsh physical experience in this fasting. Lent can mean very different things, and what we give up for fasting is going to be totally of our own choosing. We do not get a ticket or a plan when you leave here that tells you what to do. But nonetheless, understand what Jesus did. Let's start with that. Let's understand that Jesus, who understood spiritual warfare, understood the reality of his battle with Satan, went led by the Spirit after a very wonderful time being baptized, And having God the Father speak these loving words. Oh, this is my son, whom I love. And the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. After that, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And so we have to understand, for Jesus, 
and for us. Make no mistake. The battle is on. Satan is after you as individuals. Satan is after your families. Satan is after our church. Make no mistake. And Jesus understood that. And so he went full of the Holy Spirit and still fasted those 40 days. So there's some things that we need to see there. You know, sometimes I think, if I were to ask you tonight, when you wrestle with temptation, do you feel guilty about that? You might think, well, yes, it's when I'm in my weakness or when I haven't done this or that or the other thing or had my spiritual disciplines in place. That's when I'm tempted. Do you understand Jesus was tempted when he was full of the Holy Spirit? Being tempted was not sin. It is not sin. And we have to understand that because that's another one of Satan's lies. The battle is um, our opportunity to honor God and show our living faith. It's not a problem because we have a battle. You don't need to feel bad. Oh, I'm tempted so much. Well, bring it on. Basically, allow God to use you in those times to honor him and to serve in his kingdom. And we might also think that um, when we face temptation, it's really just uh, a spiritual battle and not physical. But Jesus is going to show us how these two things are connected. We are physical. Jesus is physical. Not just was physical. Jesus has a physical body now. And certainly when he was here on earth, he had a physical body that felt weakness and hunger and tired and uh, fatigue and sorrow and a lot of the emotional things we feel when we're hard-pressed. Jesus felt those. And so we've got to understand how these two worlds connect, the physical and the spiritual. And this pattern of his being tempted will help us see that. It's another interesting little parallel here. Jesus is called the second Adam. And you know the first Adam was brought to that place of temptation. And some of the temptations that he was faced with are very similar or parallel to the temptations that Jesus faced. Only the outcome was so different. In the sense that Adam, and in Adam, we failed and fell. And Christ did not fall to these temptations. So, if it's going to be normal for us to face and fight temptation, can we learn anything tonight from Christ in these temptations? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, If, big if, if you are the Son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone. So what's the first temptation? This is the temptation that comes in the physical realm. Satan knew Jesus was hungry. He knew he was tired and weary and his body was losing strength from having fasted so long. And so the first place he attacks is in the physical realm. Hey Jesus, why don't you make some bread? Aren't you hungry? Aren't you hungry? If you are the Son of God. You see, there's the test. Prove something. Don't assume something. Don't assume your relationship with, the God, with God the Father. Don't assume that you are part of the Trinity. Prove it by taking and making bread instead of waiting on God the Father to meet your needs. And I will say that this is something Satan is still up to. He loves to tempt us where we are most vulnerable. And he loves to tempt us physically, doesn't he? I think of, uh, depending on people's circumstances, Satan will almost always look for that vulnerable spot. It's my uh, conviction that for singles, young adults who are single or others who are single but would like to be married, that's often the point where Satan tempts because it's something they want the most. Whatever you're hungry for the most, Satan will understand that. 
And he will try to use that in your life to distract you and to get you to satisfy yourself instead of trusting God for that need. And I see it with singles. I see it with people in all kinds of other situations. I think whenever we have physical ailments or hurts or those kind of things, and God is asking us to trust him in that point and to carry our life, even our health, with an open hand and say, God, I would like to be healed. I would like for this to pass away from me, but I'm trusting you. I'm not taking it into my own hands. You, as a faithful and caring God, will carry me through one way or the other. But it's in that very area where Satan will say, you better do something about this yourself. Can you really trust God with that? You better get to Mexico and check on some alternative medicine, I think. And that's the way Satan works. He attacks us at the point where our need is greatest. And he'll come right after that point and say, don't trust God with that. That's too big a thing. It's not safe. Do you think God really will provide for you? You better take care of yourself. You know what Satan told Adam and Eve? Did God really say you couldn't have that? If you take that fruit and you have the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. You won't need God. You'll be equal with God. And that's the invitation all the time of temptation. Don't trust God. Don't wait on God. Don't do things God's way. And in so obeying, show your faith in him. Instead, Take matters in your own hands. And that's the invitation of the bread. And of course, Jesus knew better. He saw through the physical desire to what Satan was really getting after. He understood Satan wanted him to not trust his father and not obey his father, but instead satisfy his own hunger. And so, of course, he answered with Scripture. And he answered him from Deuteronomy. And uh, our passage just picks up a little clip of that when he said, man will not live on bread alone. But listen to this whole thing from Deuteronomy. It's quite uh, an interesting passage that I think that the hearers that Luke wrote to would have understood. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3 says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years? Jesus had just been tempted in the desert 40 days. And he refers to a passage where the Israelites had been tempted for 40 years in the desert. And why did God do that? Why did he lead you around for 40 days? It's written in Deuteronomy, he led you to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And so when you have a trial, when you have a temptation, and you just find it personally irritating or fatiguing, or perhaps you're, again, uh, inclined like we so often are, to think, well, this is just a matter of me, and I just need to work this out. It really doesn't touch anybody else. We need to see the big picture. Jesus said, I see that God is at work in your life to test you to see whether you will trust him or not or take matters into your own hands. And Jesus understood that. And he said to Satan, I refuse to be independent. I am committing myself to always obey the Father and be dependent on him. What do we say? Anytime there's a temptation that comes to us, you know, we might think that we still haven't touched anything too real in this physical realm. But I assure you, when it comes to these physical temptations, let's say your real temptation is chocolate. Or let's say it's cigarettes or drinking. Or perhaps it's some adult conversation here, pornographic site that you go to to satisfy yourself because you're convinced God won't satisfy you. God won't take care of you. God can't meet your need. You have to understand when you're tempted... In any of those areas, the question is, will I obey God and trust him to meet my need, or will I go about myself satisfying my need and finding a way to fill this empty heart that I have? 
And Satan keeps whispering to you, don't trust God. God plays hardball. He might not give you what you want. And God is waiting to see, will you trust him? Will you say, you know what, God, even if the fig tree doesn't blossom, even if you don't make me have an easy life and answer my prayer every way that I want, yet will I trust you? Because there's no other place to find satisfaction except in trusting and obeying you and pleasing you and honoring you with my life, whether you make it plentiful or whether you make it difficult. And do you see that there's a stage set and the angels are watching to see how you will respond? There is no temptation that happens to you in private. There is a sea of witnesses watching to see whether you obey and whether you will trust God or not. And we have that opportunity just as Jesus did. May we respond as he did with his word. Well, after this physical temptation, we see another dimension here in the next temptation, which really is fully in the spiritual arena. It starts in verse 4, or sorry, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Must have been really interesting, don't you think? Some kind of big screen TV up there. And all these things going by, click, 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 click. Here's this powerful place, and here's this prince, and here's this palace, and here's all these riches, and here's all these people, and all this pomp, and all the uh, comforts that they have. And he shows him that, and he says to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to, so if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So where does Satan come after Jesus next? Where does he come after us? He went for the heart. He appealed for that part of the heart of Jesus, which is the heart of all of us, where you know what? We want to be the center of the universe. We want everybody to think we are so special and so important and deserve so much respect. And Satan will offer us ways to get that or to seek that. And we go after it. I think he starts young. I'll say two-year-olds, but it might be before then. And they kind of think of themselves as the center of the universe, don't they? And it's pretty hard to actually convince them otherwise. You know, they just don't understand why somebody else has to have toys. Why can't they have all the toys? They don't understand why there's a birthday party and it's not for them. I don't know if you've ever been at a birthday party with children where a parent really struggled because they brought their son or daughter and their son or daughter didn't understand it wasn't their party. And they have to keep pulling them down to sit down and and they're really embarrassed because their kid just doesn't know how to not be the center of attention. Well, that's how our hearts are. And Satan was saying to Jesus... I'll give you everything. I will make you the center of the universe. I'll give you all power, all authority, all wealth, everything your heart desires, I will give you. You know, I, um, <clears throat> I don't want to sound like a socialist here, but I think sometimes that the way we even go about competition and interaction with one another feeds on this desire we have to be the center of the universe. I mean, actually, have you ever thought about what's a beauty contest really about? I mean, really, it's about having a winner and a lot of losers, isn't it? But everybody wants to be the winner. Everybody wants to be that person that they say, in this whole room, maybe from all these states, you're the most beautiful. You're above everybody else. And so what if everybody else is humiliated and found second, third, or 43rd to come to that conclusion? And I think there are ways that we actually embrace this in our culture. We do it in business. And I'm not against um, competition totally 
nor am I against incentives. I don't want you to hear this wrong. But I think when we say, you know what, if I just set up a good plan so I have employee of the month, and some of you might do this, so I could be in trouble before I'm done tonight, but, you know, (laughs) it's all right. The idea is sometimes we're appealing to that base nature. To say, I can get this guy to work incredibly hard because they so desperately want to be the center of the universe. They want people to think they're better than anybody else and they're above everybody else. And so I'll use that to my benefit. I'll get all my employees to run around like rats because one of them wants to win, be the king for the day. And that's appealing to the same things that Satan appealed to with Jesus. And it's working in our heart all the time. And you think, well, no, that's not me. I'm a humble person. Or I don't even like to be getting attention. I like to be quiet. I like to be reserved. But really think about it. How much of your energy goes into wondering what other people think and trying to figure out how to make them think better of you and making sure that all that you do leaves that good impression, that that presence that you put forward out there is going to actually impress them and move you forward and whoever's keeping score in this game. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus was tempted with that day. It was an incredible spiritual challenge. Um, Some things to note here. Satan was offering something he couldn't deliver. He did not actually have the authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. Who does? God the Father, who was going to give it to Jesus in the right time. But you know what? When Satan offers you things, he's often lying to you as well. When he says, oh, if you'll just do this, you might as well go for this. You know, it's so important. If you can get to this place in your business, you'll be so satisfied. It doesn't matter if you cheat and if you hurt people and if you do cruel things to get there, because it'll be so good when you get there, and he's lying through his teeth. When you get there and he's ruined your character in the meantime and caused you to disobey God, you'll be a crunched up, crumbled up soul wondering what in the world you're doing. And Satan will be laughing at you for having bought what he tried to sell you as a bill of goods. And so we need the word of God and the example of Christ to open our eyes to this spiritual arena. And we need to answer like Christ did. We don't want to take shortcuts. Satan was offering Jesus a way to get what he was going to get anyway without the suffering. It's another temptation Satan likes to offer. God says in his word that suffering is beneficial for us. Count it all joy, brethren, when various trials come. Satan says there's never a day that a trial is a good thing. If you can in any way avoid a trial, you should do that. You shouldn't rejoice when a trial comes. And see, we miss the spiritual dimension. We miss God saying, listen, I want to work in your heart and your soul, that which will be to eternal good and to my glory and to your benefit because your faith will grow and your soul will expand when you trust me in this situation. And Satan says, no, find a shortcut. Find a way around the suffering. Even if you have to hurt somebody else or do whatever is necessary, get around it because you don't want to go through it. That's the same thing that he told Jesus. I'm going to share a sad story of a friend of mine He was a pastor, and this temptation came to him in a strange way. He had been a pastor of a church that merged with another church, and so they were co-pastoring this church, and it was a church of about 200, could sustain two pastors, but both had been in decline, and after they merged, they continued in decline. And so the churches that came together were still shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So pretty soon, he had to go get another job because it couldn't afford to support two pastors anymore. And yet he faithfully wanted his church to grow and he wanted his friend to be seen as successful. And so he worked hard and they did everything they could and the church kept shrinking. Pretty soon the budget was under pressure and they were having a hard time paying that one pastor even, his friend that he'd merged with. 
And so, mind you, he is so desirous that this church that he's identified himself with, that he's a pastor of, he's so anxious that that church would be successful that he figured any means would justify the end. As long as that church kept going, God would be glorified. So the man, this pastor, was working uh, for a builder as the bookkeeper. And he started stealing funds from the builder to give to the church to keep the church going. Think about that for a minute. I mean, what kind of thinking says, yeah, God's going to be glorified and good's going to be happening by my stealing money to give to the church. But this guy stole over $100,000 over the course of a couple of years. And, uh, and trying to keep this thing going because, you know what? He wasn't trusting God. He wasn't accepting the trial that God had given them. Instead, he was feeling like, I've got to take matters into my own hands and I've got to make this work. Because if I don't, it'll be so humiliating for me. The church I pastored failed. And I couldn't stand that. And so it was this cry again to take care of himself and to take things into his own hands. And I just let you know that we all have this kind of temptation that comes to us in strange ways. So again, Jesus answered him with scripture. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. So for a second here, I want to combine these spiritual temptations to power and to putting yourself up on a pedestal and all the things that go with that to the physical battles that Jesus faced first being hungry and come back to fasting. So what place might fasting have? Is it required? Is there some kind of a law given that we have to fast so many days or fasting means a certain thing? It is, and I can tell you right now, you can leave here and by the grace of God and the mercy of God, your sins are forgiven and you don't lose points for not fasting. Okay, let's be clear about that. This is not a brownie point system, okay? But nonetheless, let's see what Jesus was doing. Jesus looked and he saw the reality of the spiritual warfare and he realized it was going to be difficult and pressing and so, instead of uh, uh, trying to earn points with God, he harnessed his physical disciplines. That is to say, he decided to harness his hunger and to sacrifice it so that he could be so focused in the spiritual realm. That's what we do when we fast. We're telling Satan, I'm not going to let you drag me around by the nose by what my body wants. I'm going to take command of my body and make sure that my body is pointed towards glorifying God. Heart, soul, and spirit. And that's why we fast, so that we can have that focus and that uh, demonstrating to God and to the spiritual arena that we're putting God first and we want to obey him and know his blessing. Now, we're warned not to fast so that other people can see. Isn't it interesting that we can so quickly take even fasting and use it as a way to put ourselves on a pedestal and to be the center of the universe? And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to fast in secret. We don't need to have all of us signing up and have an overhead projector here having the names of the people that agreed to fast. We need people to go home and say, you know what? I recognize I'm in a spiritual warfare situation. And for the glory of God and for the good of eternity and for the good of my soul, I'm going to choose to fast, Lord, because I just want to draw near to you. And I want your grace and your mercy in a fresh and a new way in my life. And so I'm going to fast. And I'm asking you to honor that, Father, as I do it in secret for the glory of God. That's what fasting is really about. That's really the heart of what Jesus showed us here and what he teaches in the other parts of the New Testament that talk about fasting. That's the way to go with fasting. Well, let me look at this last temptation and just put this. If the first one was in the physical arena and the second was in the spiritual arena, this one I'm going to call being in the relational arena. 
after he blew off Satan with that temptation, he said, uh, as is written, you can serve the Lord and serve him only. And the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Satan has this idea. Come to this pinnacle, Jesus. And if God loves you so much, throw yourself down and force him to show his love and faithfulness to you. Again, what Satan was attacking was the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And that's what Satan is always attacking. When Satan comes to you with any temptation, and you might think, you know, this is just a private sin. This doesn't touch anybody. I've got news for you. There is no sin you say yes to that doesn't affect other people. Okay, just trust me on that if you don't believe me. And those of us that work with people and work with families and work with marriages and work with parents and children, you can see it. People think, no, I've had people sit in my office and say, we're getting a divorce, but it's a really friendly divorce and it's not going to affect our children at all. say, really? You would hope that that's true, but you can't make it up. The statistics, and I'm looking at your kids and I'm dealing with your kids and I'm trying to minister to kids, I'm telling you there's going to be pain and issues that come in their life because of your choices. That's the way it works. No man is an island. And so in this case, Satan is always trying to get a wedge between us and God and us and each other. So every time you're tempted, realize this isn't just between me and God even. It's not just a matter of, well, if I fail in this sin, I guess I'll stumble along spiritually. No, you're going to affect other people. And guess what? We're a body of believers here together as a church. And when some of us are choosing to sin, whether it be whatever, in our personal lives or even in our corporate lives with things like gossip or um, other ways that we hurt each other with our words, it affects the whole church and it weakens us as the body of Christ. And so we really have to see this relational connection. And Jesus pushed back again against Satan when he said that. And he said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What he's saying is, Satan, I know God loves me. I know whose I am. And I'm going to choose to obey him. And I will not test him. I will not make him prove his love. He's already proved his love. And that's to be our attitude as well. And of course, celebrating Easter is one of our best times to remember how much he proved his love. So church, uh, this is going to be open conversation now here. That is a sense I want to be honest with us. We're moving into this Lent series, and it's usually our experience that more people come on Ash Wednesday, and then as it goes week by week by week, we see less people participate. And I understand how busy people are and how hard it is to come on on Wednesday night, but I just want to say what we're going to be doing is studying things like brokenness and repentance and confession and forgiveness and restoration. These are the tools God has given so that we can be one in Christ and be spiritually healthy and be spiritually protected. And it is the reason the church, for something like 17 centuries, has celebrated and experienced and practiced Lent. Okay? Now, where are we as a church? This is where I'm going to get real honest. God is good and God is faithful. But have we not had some bumps as a church? Have we not had some difficulties? Are we not being tested? And I'm not encouraging anybody to think that this is a time to start judging others and saying, okay, the time of Lent is to figure out who the sinner is so we can hang them in our midst. That's not what this is about. But isn't it the time for us to say, God, what would you teach us during this trying season? What do you want to teach me? Start with me, Lord. Do I have things I need to confess?
Should I be broken before you because I haven't been walking in obedience for your honor and your glory? Would you teach me what you want me to learn? And then what about us as a church? Father, what do you want to teach us as a church from these last couple of years' experiences? And, you know, I um, appreciate we sent out our letter a week or so ago announcing John's resignation. And I've had a lot of conversations with people since that time. And again, I'm not judging anybody. God is sovereignly at work. And nor do I want to squelch the hope that we hold that God will continue to use and work in the future as he has in the past. But in, that, in those conversations, I've found there are people, some people said to me, well, I'm not actually grieving that John is gone. I'm grieving that Bruce is gone. And other people said, you know, I'm grieving that Mark is gone. And others who said, oh, I didn't understand this whole thing that happened with John. I'm just sad that so much pain is happening at our church. To which I say, isn't it a fair season to just ask God to show mercy to us and to teach us humbly to walk with him? And to say, Lord, what do you want to teach us before we take the next step in this journey? And I'll tell you something, Christ Church. God has given us a heritage here that is rich. There are so many people that have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because this place is a light for the gospel. And I so desire that we would continue being a light, a place where people come and they have the fragrance of Christ, they sense the love of Christ, they hear the truth about who Christ is and what he did. But we might really be wise to take this season to listen to God and say, God, what do you want to teach us as a church so that we can walk with you in your ways and not be distracted or uh, taken off the path by all these things that Satan wants to do to us. We don't want to end up devouring ourselves. We don't want to end up trying to keep now fighting for seeing who's going to get the most influence in this church. My phone's been ringing quite a bit. It's quite an interesting place to be. Uh, and, I, and I don't mind. I love talking with people, but a lot of people think, well, couldn't we do this and can't we do that? And we need to do some things, and we are in the parish council and the wardens. They're working hard, I'm telling you. But let me just suggest, this is a good time to wait on God as well and to listen. And so, I just would really challenge you to take advantage of this Lenten season. Come as often as you can. Maybe that's part of what you give up for Lent is your Wednesday nights for the next six weeks. And you come and you hear about confession and brokenness and repentance and restoration. And together as a whole church, we say, Lord, what do you want to teach us about mourning? We're supposed to laugh with those who laugh and mourn with those who mourn. We have some people amongst us who are mourning. And so may God teach us these things for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for your word, for the way Jesus used your word to basically uh, combat Satan and his tactics and to live in obedience to you. And Father, we want that to be true of our church. We want to stand on your word. We want to fight against temptation. We want to have our eyes open to where the real battle is. And Father, we want to have you help us to overcome We want to overcome. We want to glorify you with our work and our ministry outside of this church and with our relationships and our love inside this church. So minister grace to us, Lord. Minister mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.